Welcome to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. We're thrilled that you're joining us for this exciting conversation with a talented physician, scientist, gastroenterologist, and the author of his newly published fabulous book, Fiber Fueled, our friend, Dr. Will Bolsovitz. Now, Dr. B has all the degrees, awards, and honors that you could hope for. But more importantly, his courageous and comprehensive approach to gastroenterology is going to open up your eyes to a beautiful interconnected world of the microbiome, the gut, and even the brain. He went to medical school at Georgetown University, trained in medicine at Northwestern Memorial Hospital, and gastroenterology at the University of North Carolina Hospitals. He has a Master's of Science in Clinical Investigation from Northwestern University and a Certificate in Nutrition from Cornell University. He's board certified in internal medicine and gastroenterology and an expert in digestive diseases and the gut. His book and his work are inspiring at a time when there's so much false information on social media about gut health. What you will learn from this conversation will change your life. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Will, it is so wonderful to have you on our podcast. We've been looking forward to having you and speaking with you about your incredible work and this beautiful book that you've written, Fiber Field. Dean and I went through it and there are just so many gems and there's so many things that we can discuss today. But first of all, I just want to say thank you for taking some time to come here and speak with us. Oh my gosh, this is like, this is a huge pleasure. And I kind of feel like it's like two years in the making. I mean, I, right. I sort of feel like it's like nine months overdue. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and I wish that we were in LA together recording this podcast and due to COVID-19, we're not, but that's okay. We will be meeting hopefully sometime very soon and, you know, hopefully celebrating and enjoying life. Absolutely. And we're grateful for technology and the fact that we can connect and um, happy to have you. And I know that we're going to meet in person sometime soon, hopefully. We always wanted to meet you because of uh, the people we we interact with. Every individual that we talk to, there's always a GI question. There's always a question about GI and the brain, but but GI system in general. And, and we're beginning to realize the importance of the GI as a central aspect of cognition and brain development and everything else. I mean, that was given, but now it, the science is catching up. And there's a lot of people saying a lot of things, and there's a tendency to be pulled to say the unusual or the most common or the most, the thing people wanna hear. But there are very few that stand for the science. That's one element, and really, truly at a, at a cost. And then also then to translate it in a palatable way, pardon the pun, to the population. I or mean, digestible way. So that's incredibly small group of people who are sticking to the science at any cost. And then to also translate it to people in a way that that's understandable. And I really literally mean this when I'm talking about you. There are very few in, in the field of GI medicine in general, but especially gastrointestinal medicine uh, that stick to these two parameters, which we value greatly. I think that we are cut from the same cloth, right? So yeah. we come from a very academic background. We each in our own way. I mean, I hope our parents are proud because of all the degrees that we have <laughs> between the three of us. Yeah. You know, and I think you guys have more than I do, but, you know, 
for me, it was a master's degree that I got from Northwestern at night in clinical investigation. Amazing. And, you know, I did that during my residency. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like on call, you know, in the ICU and then would run over to my class with the pager. Yeah. I'd sit through an epidemiology class and then like the pager would go off and I would run back and run a code and then like come back to class. And it was insane. That's amazing. Uh, That's lovely. It, it gives you a different perspective. Completely. It, different. Yeah, it does. And, you know, it's fun. And, and then I went to the University of North Carolina and I was at the Gilling School of Global Public Health. And I did an epidemiology fellowship on the T32 grant, yeah. which was amazing because you're studying with like literally the, the leading epidemiologists. Yes. I mean, for people who are listening right now, effectively, there are three top, every year, top schools of public health. And they're Harvard, Hopkins, and UNC. It's yeah. always those three. So, you know, I'm there studying with these top epidemiologists. It's a, it's a dedicated GI epidemiology fellowship. Our division at the University of North Carolina takes great pride in its epidemiology work and the papers that they've published. Bob Sandler is a, was, was the division chief when I was there, and he's done you know most of the nutrition and colon cancer research that yeah. we cite you know routinely today. Yeah. So, so anyway, I I had this journey, and it's just like you can't predict what's going to happen during your life or during your career, and that sometimes for me is hard to swallow because I'm a planner you know, and I always have a five-year plan. I think it's going to happen. And then something pulls the rug out from under me. Yeah. And so for me, I, I had to leave academics because I enjoy taking care of patients too much. Mm-hmm. And as you guys know, you can't have it both ways. You can't be a clinical researcher and a patient, you know, a, a, someone who sees patients routinely. I mean, if you're a clinical researcher, then you spend literally a half a day a week in the clinic. That's it. Mm-hmm. So I had to leave, which was tough for me, given my background and all this epidemiology training. And it's just kind of funny how I found plant-based nutrition. It transformed my life, transformed my own health. It transformed the health of my patients in my medical practice. And now all of a sudden, all of those skills that it was so hard for me to walk away from, I'm reinvigorated and I'm pulling, you know, I'm putting my epidemiology hat back on to have these conversations about, you know, nutrition and GI and the intersection with brain health and using my background to interpret the studies. And really, and I've told many of my research colleagues this, I feel like I just have a different position within the entire framework of how this works. You know, they're doing the research now, they're doing the studies, and I'm the guy who takes their study and I translate it for human consumption. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I'm- I think you have the best of both worlds. Um, you know, you have the research background and you have the public health background, but you also have the opportunity to translate that. Like you said, a lot of times when you're in the academics world, and well, you've seen that. It's interesting because I did the T32 grant as well of epidemiology grant in Columbia. Yep. Um, sometimes when you live in that world and you get stuck in that whole academia movement where you're supposed to publish a certain number of papers every year and you attend conferences, the message gets lost in those echo chambers and it becomes almost, you know, just pure academia and very little translation. I always find it so interesting for people who have had that background and then they go out in the community and they see the benefit of those of those translational work in their patients and they see the improvement. To us, I think for Dean and I, that's one of our biggest joys 
to see how we apply that into people and communities and see the difference it makes. And, and it's a different skill set, you know, the science skill set and, and the whole, you know, when you traverse that, that landscape and then the skill set of translating it in a way where you're actually connecting to diverse set of minds that are accepting the data at different levels. That is such an important job. It's, a, it's almost more important than the academia. I mean, you've worked with the top people in the world and we've worked with them. I, I tell people, I've worked with four people with more than 800 publications each. But the number of papers that were translatable to people and, and the, the time that it took to trans, none. It was not, none of that effort was made and none of it could have been made because they were so esoteric and sometimes so, uh, the data for the sake of the data. So I love what you do, which is the clinical work. You bring the language that you learn from the best place in the world. And then we hear you talk. You translate it beautifully. And this book translates it beautifully. And, and the lowest denominator of acceptance and receptivity, this book is that, literally that. If somebody reads this, they find themselves, their own journey in this. And that's critical. Because if for somebody to know, I, we talked about this, that, you know, uh, trust, trusting integrity and capacity. In, in a book, integrity is, is this book genuine to the point where they're connecting to me at my emotional level? And that's every human being. And is, can I then trusting the capacity is this person talking, are they another YouTuber, another person that's picking up multiple, you know, talks from YouTube and creating a whole conspiracy thing or is it based on valid, repeatable direction of data that doesn't assume absoluteness, but assumes that this is the direction we should go because both on the science side and on the translation side, the data is there. Sorry, there was a lot of wonkiness that, that negated everything I said there, but this is that book, which, which is I love about this book. So oh, I'm sorry, geez. I'm pushing that concept forward because it is that important. It really is. Well, you got me fired up right now. You got me <laughs> fired up right now. I'm excited. You know, I have to tell you, it's kind of interesting. And I think you guys can relate to this. I don't know that everyone necessarily can who writes a book. Is that when the book was done, I had to get my blurbs. Okay. So the blurbs are like, who supports you, right? Right, right. And there was a very, very stark contrast between who were the blurbs that my publisher wanted to see with full respect to them. I mean, this is what they do for a living. They sell books, right? Yeah. yeah. And the more they sell my book, the more we're going to get this information out there. So that's a good thing. We have, you know, we have the same goal. But, you know, there was a very distinct difference between who they wanted to see quotes from. And meanwhile, I'm getting quotes from like Justin Sonnenberg and, you know, um, Emeryn Meyer, who you guys may be familiar with. Yes, from God, yes. And Balfour Sarter. And like, these are the people who are standing at the podium at the microbiome conference. Yeah. These are the people who are writing the research that's being published in the top journal in the entire planet, Nature. These are the people who may be up for Nobel Prizes someday. And they're supporting my book. They're saying that this is it. This is the legitimate science. And when you go to the other stuff, I realize there's so much, it's so hard for the layperson right now because they're hearing voices coming at them from so many different angles. How do you distill through the noise? How do you find truth? Because the truth is in there. Yeah. How do you get rid of the noise to find the truth? And I think that one of the things that you need to see is you need to look out for the lone wolf. You need to look out for the lone wolf who's howling at the moon, but everyone else is going, whoa, whoa, whoa. We already have scientific consensus and you're bringing up something that's just crazy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. 
once in a generation, once in a generation, a person will come along out of the, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of scientists across the globe. Once in a generation, a person will come along and they'll have a unique idea that people will say they are crazy. Okay. And it will subsequently be proven to be true. And then they will win Nobel prizes and we will shower them with respect and love. It's what happened with the H pylori. Yes. I was thinking about just that. Yeah. And the development and the development of ulcers in the intestines related to a bacteria. I mean, prior to the 1980s, we thought that ulcers just came from stress. That was yeah. it. Yeah. And so that was just one example, but people need to understand these guys out there who are telling you that something that's counterintuitive, oh my gosh, eat 100% meat because you will be healthy. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Find me a legitimate researcher who will back that up. Find me a person who's willing to put their academic career on the line for that idea. It doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. It doesn't exist. So you got to look out, you got to watch out for these people who are out there and they, frankly, they want to tell you what you want to hear. Yeah. Cause that's what sells them books and supplements and gets them deals with, with companies where they can make a lot of money off of their influence. Uh, that that drive, that uh, uh, temptation is so great. I mean, <clears throat> when we wrote our book um, and based on the work, I mean, Aisha and I took a veer, veered really left. And, um, and although Loma Linda is not very left, I mean, it's it's an academic institution, but it's not the Harvards and the Hopkinses and all of these other universities. So we decided to go to Loma Linda and create a clinical program, collect data, I mean, day after day, collect data and write the, the, the book. Uh, <clears throat> and, and when we uh, went to the publishers, they say, if you can just hint at the fact that you can potentially reverse Alzheimer's, just hint at it, you'll sell 2 million extra books. We said, we can't. I mean, there are other people in the field of brain that have made all kinds of claims based on no science. They've never done any science, first of all. And those that did science based it on 10 patients that nobody was able to ever reproduce. And they made claims that people want to hear. And right. the kind of claims, I love the statement, uh, people love hearing good news about their bad habits. Exactly. That's the biggest driver of marketing. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Well, it's so, just like, you know, if I wanted to sell a bazillion books, number one, I wouldn't write a book about fiber because yes. everyone thinks fiber is boring. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's sexy and I want to talk about how sexy fiber is. But, yeah. you know, that's number one. And number two, you know what I would write if I wanted to sell a bazillion books? I would write a book that validates the keto diet yeah, yeah, or that true. validates the paleo diet, right? If you write a book and you come with a new angle and you're a medical doctor and you say, hey, here's the reason why beans and grains are bad for you. Guess what? You're going to sell a bazillion books because the yeah. entire paleo community is starving for a medical doctor just to say that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then and, and a friend of ours who was actually originally from Loma Linda, a, a surgeon, uh, who wrote, uh, well, we can say the, uh, uh, this paradox book. The plant paradox? Plant, plant yeah. paradox. Oh, my goodness. I was with Sophie, my daughter, and I, I in a very friendly way, I kind of challenged him. And then he said, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm very pro-plants. I'm like, how can you say one thing and say another thing in the same breath? Because that's the kind of, you know, uh, marketing. And so I love, let's get back to the science. I love this book for its honesty, for its integrity, for its science-based and reason-based and we love the concept of, uh, to the best of our knowledge today, meaning I think the only humility that exists is in science because it doesn't assume absoluteness. It doesn't assume absolute knowledge. And the best of knowledge today has gotten us to fly at, you know, 300 people in, in the air. That's the scientific methodology. It wasn't based on absoluteness, not even on physics realm. 
but it's good enough and, and it's data-driven. So I love that. So let's get to the science of this and, and what we're talking about. First of all, I would love to find out what got you into GI and the, the very subject matter. What was the passion behind it? Well, if you go back, you know, 15 plus years, um, actually go back 20 years, I thought I was going to be a pediatrician. Hmm. That was okay. my plan. I love kids. Yes. And so, and I had this passion that I thought in medical school, this is what I was going to do. So I, I sort of geared myself up for it. And you guys know the third year of medical school, you do clinical rotations. So you do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's, I mean, honestly, it's a lot of fun. Yes, yeah, it is. Yeah. But I got to my peds rotation and, you know, this is just kind of the way it works. Sometimes you discover that this thing that's rational and it makes sense to you, you actually go to do it and you're like, oh gosh, that's just not, it's just not for me. Yeah. So I opened up, you know, sort of my mind to, okay, well, what is, what, what do I do enjoy? What, what really gets me going? And I found that I loved medicine, adult medicine, because I loved the idea of using my mind to basically peel apart the layers of complex medical problems. You know, I loved taking care of the ICU patient that has 15 different things going on. And I'm trying to figure out how to balance all 15 things at once, you know, and you're creating plans where they're all dynamically changing on a daily basis, even by the hour sometimes. I loved that. But the other part of it is I wanted something where I could actually use my hands a little bit. I didn't want to exclusively be in the clinic. And so I, I started to look at both the surgical subspecialties and the more procedure forward internal medicine subspecialties like GI and cardiology. And ultimately what I found is I just loved GI. I loved it for the diversity of the organs. So, you know, if I'm a cardiologist, there's one organ and that's it. And I just think about it beating 90 times a minute. And with GI, I am considered the expert on the esophagus, stomach, pancreas, liver, spleen, small intestine, colon, rectum, hemorrhoids. I even get the hemorrhoids. <laughs> yes, yes. So, I mean, you do have to swallow your pride a little bit when you choose to become a gastroenterologist. When I met my mother-in-law for the first time, she was kind of giving me the evil look, like, what is the deal with this proctologist? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, but I found that, I found the passion for the diversity of the organs. I love patients. The patients are suffering with issues that affect their quality of life. And so you, you are providing a tangible benefit to these people when they go from suffering with these quality of life issues to a place where they come in and they're like glowing and they're smiling and now they're out in the community again and they're being social and they have their life back. And, right. and that, that brings great satisfaction to me because I mean, really for me, all this, the book, the Instagram account, these ideas about plant-based nutrition, my career, everything, every single part of it goes back to the teenage boy who made the decision that he wanted to help people. That was it. I made that decision and that has been my driving motivation. I wake up every morning and that's in my heart. It's part of my soul. And it fuels me to want to do things that sometimes don't make sense from an economic perspective, sometimes force me to make huge sacrifices in my personal life. Mm -hmm. And I do them just because I feel like it's not even conscious. It's completely subconscious, but this is what I'm on the planet to do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we love you. It's wonderful to hear that because uh, it, it's rare. And especially for someone who is so knowledgeable and you've spent so many years in school to see you bring that to the world is just absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Let's talk about the gut. 
let's start with the microbiome. So I was reading your beautiful book and I know that, you know, we know this already. We've, we've studied this in medical school and the incredible microbiome and, you know, the gut bacteria, but we tend to forget how amazing this whole system is. It's like a universe in our body. And, you know, anything that we do to it affects every other system. So I want you to kind of give us an overview of what the microbiome is all about and its importance in your, in your day-to-day work and in our lives. So let me start here. You know, we are human but we are not alone. (laughs) And if you were to start at the top of your head and go all the way down to the tip of your toes, you would find that every single surface is covered with invisible microbes. When I say microbes, I mean things like bacteria, fungi, you know, archaea, not so much on the skin, but covered, all external surfaces are covered with these invisible microbes that we can't see. And so that includes our mouth, our nose, a woman's vagina, but they're concentrated, the number one place by far is inside of our gut, specifically our colon, which you could also call your large intestine. This is where they are completely concentrated. They exist, the number of them is staggering. 39 trillion, 39 trillion. And that number, if you take every single star within our galaxy, you have 100 galaxies worth of stars inside your colon. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. That's and they're there right now and they're functioning and they're working on your behalf. And the reason why they're working on your behalf is because there has never been a moment. I, I by the way, I love an evolutionary biology story. Yes. <laughs> Especially when it actually is real science and not just an idea. That's yeah. true. Yeah. There has never been a moment in human history where we were sterile. Mm. There has never been a moment in human evolution where we were free of our microbes. They were with us from the very beginning. They evolved with us. The proper word is co-evolution. We should never talk about evolution without talking about the effect on our microbes that are part of the story. And so we went through this 3 million years of human evolution with these microbes in hand. And here's what happened. We trusted them. We trusted them. We learned to rely on them for human physiology. Our biology is not independent of them. In fact, if we were independent of them, if we were sterile, we would get very sick and fall apart very quickly. So we rely on these microbes and it's more than just digestion. Look, we all know that these microbes affect our digestion. I mean, everyone knows that, right? But it goes so far beyond that. You know, you get into the immune system, 70% of the immune system is there in the gut, in the gut associated lymphoid tissues in constant communication with the microbes. You can't separate the two. Literally, when I, when I researched my book, there's one table that shows you all of the immune-mediated conditions that are associated with dysbiosis, damage to the gut. Every single immune-mediated condition that I looked up, I found a study that showed dysbiosis. I couldn't find one where that was not true. Yeah. So the immune system, our metabolism, you know, whether or not, you, like your weight balance, whether or not you are obese, type 2 diabetes, gout, all associated with these gut microbes. Our hormonal balance. The gut is an endocrine organ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's an endocrine organ just as much as the testicles and the ovaries are. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, there's the brain-gut axis, which That's is right. what we're here to talk about today. Yes. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, y- you were trained as brain experts. I was trained as a gut expert. 
And now we need to find the common watershed ground between the two of us because you can't separate these two organs. That's true. Absolutely. Completely intertwined. At the neuro, now we know that at the neurotransmitter level, at the hormonal level, at the feedback level to the brain, at every level, there is an interaction that's not time lagged. It's right there every moment that, that what's happening in the guts affecting the brain and vice versa. And, and that relationship is becoming much more lucid uh, as, as time goes along. There is, there is bi-directional communication yeah. for the person who is listening at home right now. Your gut is talking to your brain and your brain is talking to your gut. And it goes both ways. And, you know, so just to unpack this a little bit um, and talk about this, and if I forget anything, please jump in and tell me. Yes. Because <laughs> yeah. you guys are as much the expert on this as I am. But there are so many ways that they are talking to each other. And let's just start with some of the staggering stuff, which is that your gut is carpeted with 500 million nerves. That's mm -hmm. right. And there are five times more nerves in your gut than there are in your spinal cord. That's they right. are constantly feeling and sensing right now. And that information is being gathered. And imagine this amount of information. It's insane. Mm -hmm. And all that information gets gathered up, 500 million nerves, fraction of the second by fraction of the second. And it goes up through the vagus nerve to your brain. And your brain can use and interpret all of that information. Mm -hmm. Correct. And it can affect brain function. Yeah. Not to mention that there are 30 neurotransmitters produced in the gut. That's right. 50% of dopamine. Now, I'm going to, because I'm on your podcast, I want to unpack 90% of serotonin <laughs> a little bit, okay? Yes, that yeah. would be wonderful. To make sure that I'm completely accurate when I say this, because, uh, you know, we like to toss around, oh, 90% of serotonin, okay? And it is true. But with full respect to you guys, and also to Frank Cusimano, uh -huh. this warrants discussion, which is that 90% of serotonin which is the happy hormone, yes. affects our mood, affects our focus, affects our energy levels. 90% is produced in the gut. And the reason why is because it affects bowel motility. It affects bowel motility. Now, that serotonin that's produced in the gut, we do not believe that it actually crosses the blood-brain barrier. But the precursors, the precursors to serotonin, the 5-HT precursors, yeah. We do think that these precursor molecules do infect the blood-brain barrier. And so there are ways through these precursor molecules of the neurotransmitters that the gut microbes are actively communicating with the brain. Mm -hmm. But perhaps the most powerful way, or at least you know, through my fiber-distorted lens uh, that I like to see through, perhaps the most powerful way that our gut communicates through our, to our brain is through microbial products. Your microbiome, your microbes, consume your food and release products. And one of the really, really critical ones comes from fiber and resistant starch, and we call it short-chain fatty acids. Mm -hmm. Butyrate, acetate, and propionate. That's right. And for the nerds at home who are listening, because I know <laughs> you guys appreciate this. I know I'm already speaking to the nerds at home who are listening, but because I'm a nerd. <laughs> But for the nerds at home who are listening, you guys know that the blood-brain barrier is more likely to accept something that is lipophilic, something that is fatty. Mm -hmm. These are short-chain fatty acids. Mm -hmm. They cross the blood-brain barrier and they enter into the brain. And we can talk more later in the podcast about the effects that they have. Yeah. 
But the point is, those are all different ways that the gut is actively communicating to your brain right now as we sit here and we have this conversation. Yeah. And it works the other way around. Your, your brain releases CRF, releases hormones into the bloodstream. The brain can communicate through the vagus nerve. It can activate the sympathetic or the parasympathetic mm -hmm. nervous system, both of which can affect digestive function. The brain is actually capable of altering the balance of your gut microbiome, mm -hmm. which is fascinating. It really is. It is. It really is. The number of ways where the gut and the brain interact are just amazing. We know that the just that we were reading on the sympathetic parasympathetic system, the or so-called, it's becoming more complex than that. The fight or flight. That mechanism is uh, from moment to moment giving feedback, biofeedback to the brain from the gut and vice versa. That simple two-way mechanism could be at the center of all existence because even more important than reproduction because it's at the for a momentary level. Digestion and what happens to you in your digestive system is more important to survival and by extension to evolution. That's the first time I actually I'm stating this, that I think that the gut is more important than reproduction in, in the evolutionary uh, cycle. So, and that- Hold on a second, Dean. Hold on. Do I have you straight that you just said the gut is more important than the brain? Did I just catch that properly? <laughs> than reproduction, reproduction. <laughs> Yeah. Right. I'll tell you, no, I, I mean, it depends on how you look at uh, importance, right? Then <laughs> this might actually take us a completely different place, which I'm not going to take it, but the brain <laughs> is important. Uh, it's an overblown organ for very simple things. And that's become a problem now, and we're not going to go there. But, but the brain as a paraphenomenon is only going to be important in the future. Yeah. What it has done so far is just you know, uh, cobble work of small incremental successes, but it's the power is just way beyond what it was originally created, which was reproduction and eating. And even more important reproduction, because that's later in life, is digestion, eating, the, the gustatory mm -hmm. process. That's the central essence of why everything exists, ironically. Right. I mean, right. uh, so because we have several types of um, uh, reproduction, but we only have digestion that's central to all existence. So uh, yeah, the short of it is, I definitely think that gastrointestinal system and digestion is more important evolutionarily than cognition because all we needed to do for survival and many organisms have survived as far as a, a, a central nervous system is a spinal cord. You know, it's, this, this is such a fascinating Fascinating. Okay, we're getting into the science, like the science fiction space a little bit here. Yeah, I was afraid it's of going so, there. Yeah. yeah, it's so fascinating to think about though because I think your point is well taken, which is this. If you look at all of the different species of animals across the globe, there are wide variations in terms of neurofunction, in terms of cognitive function, in terms of what they're capable of, the way that their brain works, right? But there's one thing that ties animals together, and that is the microbes. Yes. There is a microbiome code that exists in nature. This is the reason why you can take, you know, there's one study, for example, that I cited in the first chapter of the book, and the study by itself is mind-blowing. They took three-month-old children, toddlers, three months old, and they took a sample from their diaper, part of their poop, and they were able to figure out which toddlers were likely to develop asthma years later. Wow. Right? Yeah. Based upon the stool specimen. Yeah. Okay. So the microbiome is already suggesting maybe they're going to develop asthma later. But then the question becomes, is it just association or is it actual causation? And so the way that they proved this 
is they took the stool specimen from the child and they put it into a germ-free mouse. Mm-hmm. And the mice who got the stool specimen from the children that they predicted mm-hmm. years later would develop asthma, they developed reactive airway disease. The mice did. Mm. And so, and it, there are so many examples where you can take the microbiome from a human and transfer it to another animal. And that animal will assume the characteristic that you found in the human. They have these studies with Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. They have these studies with Alzheimer's disease. Yes. And how we prove the relevance of the gut microbiome, that it's not just association. It's not just true, true, but unrelated. That in fact, the gut microbiome is in fact part of the causation, perhaps not all, but part of the causation pattern that exists in the development of all these different disease states that we come across. Absolutely. As you said, it has existed with us from the very beginning, wherever you see that beginning, four billion years or uh, several hundred thousand years. Uh, actually, it's got to be in the, in the billions. So we're talking about this coexistence or symbiosis. This is a symbiotic relationship of equal measures. I mean, by numbers, they are equal. I mean, if not if, even more. So there has to be uh, this interaction that that superimposes every aspect of our existence. Mm-hmm. This microbiome determines every aspect of our existence, including our thinking, our brain, our our emotions. That's another uh, subject that uh, I would love to talk to you about uh, later. But even our momentary emotions are determined that by that um, uh, microbiome and what's happening there. Didn't you just call poop as one of the vital signs? Like there's a there's a section where you say that stool, the human stool, is as vital as heart rate and blood pressure because of all the information that we're getting. And I think what your story was quite relevant to that fact. I think it's time that we start paying respect to human stool. You know? <laughs> I love that. You're right. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, look, maybe I'm a little bit tongue in cheek when I say that, but it actually is, it, it truly is a window into what's happening with your microbiome. of the weight of human stool, 60% is actually microbes. Yeah, that was a startling fact. I I did not know that. So you would think that it's just the residue from your food, but it's not. It's actually more microbe than it is the residue from your food. And I think that it's a window into the health of our microbiome. And, you know, I see people with digestive disorders and they have diarrhea and constipation and all these altered forms of stool. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think part of the issue that we see in modern society is that 97% of us are not getting the minimal recommended amount of fiber. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we have normalized abnormal. We sit around and we say, oh, well, one bowel movement a day is normal. No, that's not. That's never been normal. That's right. Normal was three bowel movements a day. I mean, you know, our ancestors were having more than 100 grams of fiber per day and the average American is getting 15. Yeah. Yeah. Scary. Uh, It's scary. It is. So let's talk about fiber. Let's let's just kind of jump into the importance of fiber in our diets and the lack thereof right now and all the problems that it actually causes. The, <laughs> well, it, you know, I want people listening at home to um, delete from your memory bank your preconceived notions of fiber because <laughs> I really need you to get rid of the mental image of your grandma stirring up the orange drink so that she could have a bowel movement, <laughs> you know. And let's start from scratch which is that fiber comes from plants. Plants have a monopoly on fiber. If you want fiber, you have to eat plants to get it. Mm -hmm. And there are many different types of fiber. One of the big misconceptions is that people think fiber is fiber. 
right? Like it's all the same. The fiber in Cheerios is the same as the fiber in a bean. And that's simply not true. Yeah. There are likely millions, if not billions of types of fiber that exist in nature. The complexity is so high that they don't even have an estimate of how many varieties of fiber are out. We don't even know. And each type of fiber has its own unique biochemistry. It has different effects in our body. It has different effects on our gut microbiome. Every type of fiber is unique. To make it simple, we break it into two categories. So in the United States, if you look at you know, a package of food, you will see soluble and insoluble fiber. And we break it down to make it simple. Insoluble fiber is the mental image that most people have for fiber, which is that it goes in the mouth, it goes through the intestine all 20 to 25 feet, and then it launches out the other end like a torpedo. That's the way that people think of insoluble fiber. And that's, that would be accurate. Soluble fiber is where the money is at. Soluble fiber has a story that's like, it's like magic, like Harry Potter style. <laughs> because what happens is soluble fiber, and by the way, the same is true for resistant starch. It goes in the mouth, passes through 15 feet of small intestine, is untouched, unchanged, and enters into the colon. And when it goes in there, your microbes get into a feeding frenzy. They go crazy because they have been starving and now you are feeding them their preferred food. See, these microbes, all life needs energy and we derive it from different places. We get our energy from different sources. These microbes get their energy from our diet. Every time you make a choice in terms of your food, you're choosing to feed certain microbes. When you choose to feed them with fiber, you are feeding the anti-inflammatory microbes. They multiply, they grow, they get stronger, just like we do when we eat a delicious, nutritious meal, right? They grow stronger. And now they turn around and they go, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm going to pay you back in spades. Mm -hmm. And they release from the fiber short-chain fatty acids. If you want these short-chain fatty acids that we've just started to talk about, butyrate, acetate, propionate, if you want them, there's only one way to really get them. And that is through the consumption of fiber in your diet and having the right microbes to produce them. And those short-chain fatty acids we're going to talk about what they do in the brain, but you know, let me tell you, I wrote an entire chapter about what they do in the gut. Yeah. This is the area of nutrition that has been overlooked, that has not been a part of the national conscious or the national conversation. We're wasting our time messing around with lectins and phytates and gluten. <laughs> We're yeah. wasting our time on these silly test tube studies when the most powerful, the most healing thing that I've ever come across in all of nutrition are short-chain fatty acids that you get from fiber. So, and that's the story of soluble fiber. And so I am obsessed. And you could call soluble fiber and resistant starch, you could call it prebiotic. That's right. And basically what that means is it's feeding the healthy bacteria that live inside you. It's amazing. I, I love the way you <laughs> describe it. You know, you're anthropomorphizing all these tiny little bacteria thanking us after eating all that fiber. And they're doing the river dance. They're down there <laughs> doing the river dance. They're doing kicks and I, all kinds of I'm picturing stuff. it. I'm picturing it. I don't think I can ever get rid of it now. 
Um, <laughs> that's a, it's quite a motivating uh, story to eat more fiber. But on the science side, when you look at brain function, we know that these short chain fatty acids do so many wonderful things. Regardless of, you know, preventing diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease and even multiple sclerosis, there's been multiple studies and the importance of short chain fatty acids in prevention of MS, they affect appetite. We know that when we consume fiber, which makes short chain fatty acids, it actually reduces our appetite. It, it gets rid of the activity in the brain that is associated with reward that we get from high energy foods. So an act of increasing your fiber consumption can actually reduce your appetite or that desire to go and have a very high energy diet. It's, it's, it's amazing. So, and this is the reason why it is so critically important for people to understand that, you know, you can try to engineer your diet for weight loss, which is what the fad diets have been trying mm -hmm. to do. And they're never successful in the long term. That's yeah. right. They're never successful in the long term because what they try to do is they try to put you into a calorie deficit or they have give you a list of restrictions. You know, hey, here's 80 things to not eat or macros or weigh your food or all this stuff that's just like we're making it so complicated. And frankly, in the process, we're giving people eating disorders. Yeah, that's so true. And when in fact, that is not our biology, mm -hmm. you know, these people who are so obsessed with evolutionary biology are ignoring the fact that our biology is designed to eat a plant predominant diet. True. Because when you do, and you do this properly, you will activate the satiety mechanisms because of the short chain fatty acids. You will activate the satiety mechanisms and you will stop eating when you are supposed to stop eating and you will not overshoot and you can maintain your weight you can maintain your weight. You can get to your healthy weight. If you're overweight, you can lose weight with abundance, mm -hmm. provided you are eating the right food. Yeah. And this, this is what Neil Barnard showed in his study that was published in 2018, which is that they took a population of people and they allowed them to eat whatever they want, but it had to be whole food, plant-based, okay, no oil. Mm -hmm. But you could eat as much as you want, whenever you want. If you are hungry, you eat food. Yeah. And when people ate that way, they lost on average 14 pounds over a couple of weeks. Yeah. With abundance, yeah. without restriction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay, so we have the insoluble fibers and then soluble fibers. And um, all of these short fatty chain acids that are created in the gut help so many different systems. In real life, if you know someone is, someone is listening to it, can you give examples of insoluble and soluble fibers? I know that you talk about abundance and about adding variety of vegetables and fiber in your diet. But if right. somebody's starting, how would you kind of tell them what to eat at this and, point? And the beauty of your book is that it's not just data. You actually give examples of foods. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so uh, let me give you a few examples. So when you look at prebiotic, I mean, basically you're asking me, what are the prebiotic foods? Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. That so, would be great if we could actually talk about prebiotics and probiotics, and then there's also a postbiotic fiber yeah. well, and yeah. the diet. Oh man, you're opening up a can of worms. Here <laughs> yes. <again. laughs> no, I want you to clarify it because, right. like you I'm said, up my shoulders. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there's so much information out there, and yeah, yeah you know, people Noise. get a lot, a lot of different information that is a lot of times clashing with each other. So. Yeah. If you could just kind of touch on that, that would be great. 
we have three chapters in the book to cover right now. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm going to jump first to the chapter on prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics. Most people have heard of probiotics, which are living microorganisms. When you hear about them, you hear about them as a capsule that you take and you put in your mouth. Yes. But in fact, the bacteria that live inside of your gut already are the same thing. Mm -hmm. They're already there. And we just need to enrich them, empower them. And when we empower the good guys, they take care of us and they, they give us what we need. So those are probiotics. Prebiotics are the food for these microbes. If, when I say enrich the right guys, basically what I'm saying is feed them prebiotics. And when I say that, really what I'm saying is fiber. Mm-hmm. Fiber and resistant starch enriches and feeds the anti-inflammatory microbes and makes them stronger. And when you do this, it goes like this. Fiber feeds the probiotic bacteria. Prebiotic fiber feeds the probiotic bacteria. And they release postbiotic short-chain fatty acids. Mm-hmm. These postbiotics, that is actually the story. This is what people have been missing about gut health. We're talking about probiotics. We're talking about prebiotics. All of these things are great, but the entire point, the entire point is the postbiotics. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's what the microbes produce that we care about. It's not whether or not the microbes exist. It's not whether or not you eat the fiber. It's whether or not the fiber can be translated into the short-chain fatty acid. That's what we care about. And so the key here is that you don't necessarily need to take a capsule. In fact, I personally, like I could get them for free from a bazillion companies. I don't take probiotics myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What you need is you need to enrich the microbes that live in your gut. We need to support the gut with the right type of food. So what is the right type of food? Okay. And I'm going to tell you that there are specific prebiotic foods that have been heralded, you know, by like sort of popular diets and stuff like that. And it's, it's actually quite short-sighted the way that they're presenting these foods because what they're doing is basically they're celebrating just one type of fiber, which is inulin. Mm-hmm. And you will find inulin in jicama and Jerusalem artichokes and um, leeks and garlic, okay? And so when you go to the internet and you type in prebiotic foods, this, this is what you're going to hear. You're going to hear jicama and, and Jerusalem artichokes and, and onions and garlic, leeks. And that's because the people who were writing those fad diets 10 years ago got really into inulin and they lost sight of the fact that every single plant has prebiotic fiber. It may not have inulin, but every single plant has prebiotic fiber. Yeah. And those unique forms of fiber will feed specific bacteria that live inside of you. For example, if you take a black bean, you eat black beans in your diet. Mm-hmm. There is a community of microbes that are thriving because you chose to eat black beans. Mm-hmm. It's a very specific community of microbes. And it may be with some overlap to what you get when you eat kale, but it's not exactly the same. Mm. These are different bacteria. They thrive based upon your specific food choice. Now, the opposite is true too. If you go, look, beans, boom, they're out. I'm not eating beans anymore. I read this book. I'm not going to name it, but I read this book and I don't want to eat beans anymore. <laughs> All right. So now those microbes that you had previously been empowering, that you previously had been strengthening, that previously had been producing short chain fatty acids for you, guess what happens? They're starving. Yeah. They grow weak. And at some point they go extinct. They disappear. Okay. Mm. So every food choice that you make 
ultimately has an effect on your gut. When you want a variety of different microbes, which truly is what we believe a healthy gut is, a diverse microbiome. When you want a variety of microbes, you have to eat a variety of foods, specifically plant foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grain, seeds, and nuts, mm -hmm. legumes. Mm -hmm. When you do categorical eliminations, if you get rid of all beans, there is no way for kale to replace what you just lost by getting rid of all beans. There's no way to do that. Interesting. Yeah. So when you make categorical eliminations, that's where I get really nervous because I think you're really doing harm to your gut microbiome. I, I love your approach. Your so the the tendency is to simplify because it's it's a gimmick, right? You increase one item or you take away one item, and people love that because simplicity is easier to manage. But it's you know life doesn't work like that. Lifestyle doesn't work like that, and especially you know eating habits don't work. You have to take the whole complexity into this. In fact, this is the first time, and we've had many conversations that we've heard somebody actually. In, you know, speak to this complexity. I love this yeah. for people to hear that you can't just focus on one thing. You have to take the whole spectrum into this. 100%. And the, but Dean, the beauty is this. The system is so complex. The system is so complex, but the solution is so simple. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when you read the book, what you find is chapter four. There is one golden rule. Forget the laundry list of foods that you can't eat. Forget weighing your food, forget macros and calorie yeah. deficits. There is one rule, diversity of plants. And here's why. Because everything that I just said to you a second ago, look, I know you guys like sit there and you say, and you think to yourself, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. It's rational, right? Mm. But let's let the science do the talking. It's not just rational. Let's let the science do the talking. And in the American Gut Project, which is the largest study to date to correlate our diet and lifestyle to the health of our gut microbiome. They did an ROC curve analysis uh -huh. that determined the clear cut above all else, number one predictor of a healthy gut microbiome. And the answer was the diversity of plants in your diet. Mm -hmm. Everything that I'm explaining to you is because this study shows that the clear cut number one predictor, the best study that we have to answer this question, says the number one predictor of a healthy gut microbiome is the diversity of plants in your diet. And it all makes so much sense. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. I really feel like the answer is this. You need to have as many friends as possible. If, if every plant is a friend, you need to have as many friends as possible. <laughs> but that being said, there is nothing wrong with having specific foods that you identify as being your foundational foods. Those are your best friends. Yeah. Those are your friends that you're reaching for on a daily basis. And so there, there's another chapter. Now we're on to the third chapter that we've discussed in yes. this conversation. Yes. yes. There's a third chapter where I use an acronym called F goals, F for fiber. And I give you my foundational foods. And look, it doesn't need to be some strange berry that they extracted from the Amazon rainforest. <laughs> <laughs> it can be this, the straightforward, cheap, inexpensive stuff that you can get from your store literally right now. Yeah. So here's what we got. F is for fruit and fermented. I think that fruit has been inappropriately attacked when you eat it as whole food, it is incredibly good for you. People lose weight when they eat fruit. People reverse their type 2 diabetes when they eat fruit. Uh -huh. Fermented food is a part of every single traditional culture in human history. And we have lost sight of that as a new culture in the, in the United States. I'm not saying that fermented food by itself completely heals your gut, but I do think that it is a contributory factor. We know that fermentation alters the biochemistry of the food in a way 
that can make it advantageous for us. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit of fermented food every day. That's what we need. G for greens and grains. Greens, it's absurd how much nutrition you get with no calories. From no, greens. absolutely. Like green nutrition. Grains, gosh, I can't believe that people are attacking grains of all things. Yes. When they have been shown in systematic review and meta-analysis to lead to prolonged life expectancy, less risk of death from a heart attack, less risk of having a heart attack, less risk of death from cancer, less risk of having cancer, less risk from lung diseases, less risk from infectious diseases. Mm-hmm. That was just one study. Yeah. 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 And in our field, less risk of Alzheimer's, stroke. prevention of Alzheimer's, stroke, Parkinson's disease. It's, I mean, the list of the diseases that can be prevented with greens just specifically or is grains. enormous. I could do a 15-minute diatribe about how wrong it is that we eliminate <laughs> grains from our diet. I could talk about the effects on the gut microbiome and the, and the way that it actually increases TMAO, mm-hmm. which is associated with stroke yes, and coronary artery disease and chronic kidney disease. Right. Okay. We could talk about all that. It's in the book. It's all in the book and it it's is. laid out in great it detail. It's fascinating. But grains, whole grains are foundational foods for the gut microbiome. They are a rich source of fiber and resistant starches. And when you eliminate them, you cannot replace them. It is, it is ignoring science to say that they are bad for you. Right, right. What I love in your, well, there's so many things I love about your book. But one of the things that I love uh, is you, you make it sensible for people to understand the different components of food. And you also address gluten, which is, you know, one of the hot topics for brain health. Uh, Gluten has been falsely accused of being associated with a number of brain disorders among people who have no problem with gluten or, or taking in gluten. Yes, obviously, as you know, there's a percentage of the population that has resistance sensitivity to gluten, but to eliminate all gluten, which comes in some whole grains is false, don't you think? I think it is completely false. And I would love to elaborate if, if you're okay with me. Of course, going please course. do. This, okay. is, this is something that we were asked all the time. I think it's really important for people who are interested in brain health to understand that when we are throwing out gluten, we are throwing out the baby with the bathwater. So now there are certain conditions like celiac disease. All right. If you have celiac disease, which by the way, is a genetic disorder. Correct. 1%. Is it 1%? 1%. Yeah. It's 1%. Right. If you have celiac disease and you're in my clinic, I'm going to tell you, you have no room for any gluten in your life. Zero. You have one cookie and I'm your doctor and I'm upset with you. Okay. <laughs> so, and that's because people who eat celiac, who have celiac disease and they consume any gluten containing product, it activates the immune system and that creates inflammation throughout the entire body. And for example, people who consume gluten and they have celiac disease are at higher risk for having a heart attack mm-hmm. because of that. So that inflammation is more than just in the gut. It can be throughout the entire body. And it can affect, you know, I've seen some interesting neurologic cases with peripheral neuropathy. Of course, uh, yes. Or altered mental status, Uh you know, Uh delirium. Yeah. So anyway, there are people who have celiac disease who should be gluten-free. But if you are tested and you do not have celiac disease, then we are talking about a different story here. Right now, one in three people in the United States is either gluten-free or actively restricting their gluten. And the problem is that the foods that contain gluten also contain prebiotic fructans, Uh which feed and nourish the microbiome. People are told gluten causes inflammation. 
gluten causes damage to the gut. This is what people are told. But there's a problem because those are test tube studies. Yeah. And we can't take test tube studies without verification in real humans. Correct. Because you're taking a messed up version of a human being with like a couple of cells and some strange concentration that is not real food of gluten and you're swirling it up in a test tube and then you're like, oh my gosh, look what happens when yeah. this crazy concentration of gluten <laughs> with this weird, like, you know, extracorporeal human cells. Like, okay, that doesn't always translate. Correct. And animal model studies also don't translate all the time. I mean, in our field, none of the mouse models have translated to Alzheimer's outcomes for humans. I mean, that's remarkable. This is why there's a hierarchy to science. Yes. Okay. Now, the layperson is not as familiar with this, but you guys are because of your research background. If you take just the test tube studies, just the animal model studies, and you try to make inferences, you're going to come up with some quack stuff. Yeah. Quack stuff. Because it's not, it doesn't always translate. So you need to see, here's my question. What happens when real people eat wheat? Mm -hmm. What happens in the gut? And as I show you in the book, there is less inflammation in the gut and there is enrichment of healthy bacteria. Okay. So it is actually good for the gut. What happens to follow up question? What happens to people when they eliminate gluten from their life in terms of their risk of the disease? Do they have less risk of heart disease or do they have more risk of heart disease? The answer is that people who do not have celiac disease, when they eliminate gluten, they increase their risk of having heart disease, which yeah. is the number one killer in the United States. Correct. And this is a problem is because they're getting rid of the number one source of whole grains in their diet, which is wheat. Okay. Yeah. Now, to be clear, I am not saying that people should make bread the backbone of their diet. I am not saying that, you know, processed foods that contain gluten should be consumed. What I'm saying is that there is a place where sourdough bread, Ezekiel bread, organic wheat products are actually incredibly healthy. They're healthy for your gut microbiome and they're healthy for your entire body. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. You know, half of my time in the clinic is spent dispelling this myth myths. of gluten and brain health. And all of these individuals completely getting rid of whole grains and you know what the danger is? Substituting it with things that are actually not good for you. Because there's a notion that if gluten's bad for you, then they go ahead and they start animal products. And those animal products we know are a big source of TMAOs and saturated fats. And it completely messes up their system, whether it's the cholesterol level, whether it's inflammatory markers in their brain. So it's wonderful that you've addressed all of these complex yet easy solutions You've given them the bigger picture and easy solutions of what needs to be done to, uh, to reduce risk. There's one more thing that I really feel compelled to tell you guys. And this is, this is uh, colleague to colleague, okay? But the people who are at home can hear this too. <laughs> I want to load you up with ammunition. I'm about to strap a bazooka onto your shoulder, okay? <laughs> for, the next time, for the next time a patient says, I got gluten sensitivity and I can't tolerate it. Okay. They did a study where they verified that people did not have celiac disease. So they knew with 100% certainty that everyone in the study was free of celiac disease. And they gave them three weeks worth of breakfast bars, either placebo, gluten, okay. or fructans. Fructans are the prebiotics that I'm talking about. Okay. 
And they, they did not tell them which one they were feeding them. And they would switch every week and they measured their symptoms day to day. Here's what they found. When people ate the gluten bar and they compared it to the placebo bar, they had more symptoms with the placebo bar than they did the gluten bar. Mm. Mm-hmm. They had less symptoms with gluten than they did with a placebo. Yeah. Okay. We call it gluten sensitivity. It's a complete misnomer. Yeah. It's, we have misnamed the disease state or the condition. Wow. When they ate the fructan bar, which is the prebiotic bar, they got triggered. Their symptoms went through the roof. Mm. The reason why comes back to what I write about in chapter five, which is that we rely on our gut microbiome to help us to process and unpack our fiber, our prebiotics. And a damaged gut can struggle with fiber. And so you need to go low and go slow. If you took that bar with the fructans and you adjusted the amount of fructans that were in it, the person would not get triggered. They would feel fine. And actually, they would be strengthening their gut because they're consuming that food. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Okay, so gluten sensitivity is not gluten sensitivity. Yeah. yeah. Gluten sensitivity is fructan sensitivity. <sighs> I love it. I love it. And it's very empowering, too, for people who go from a very unhealthy Western diet to a high fiber diet. That transition needs to be done right. We have a lot of people giving up and not continuing with this lifestyle because of all the symptoms they have because their gut isn't just ready for it. Right. Well, and that's where I think the most important chapter in my whole book, like literally, you know, I think everyone is going to find something that they enjoy in the book. But I feel like the most important chapter, my gift is chapter five, which is finding your plant passion with a sensitive gut. Yeah. Yeah. Because the person who has a damaged gut, and these these are my patients. This is what I see every single day. The person with a damaged gut is the person who struggles the most to introduce plants to ramp up their fiber. And I want them to understand what's actually happening within their body and how to adapt in order to be successful. I'll tell you, um, in our study, I I think I just, I'm going to we will have a consensus with Aisha and, and the rest of the team. But I think for our study, the 700 interventional group, I think they're all going to read your book. We will be pushing that concept to the study group because uh, it, it is that important for us every day to go over the fact that the fact that you can't or you're having some difficulty in transitioning. It's not the thing in itself. It's, it's, I don't want to sound philosophical, but it's, it's the transition. It's, it's the fact that you, you, know, you have to go through a process. And what the mechanism is behind that is in the book. And that will explain things. So, and, and that sacrifice or that, that journey is important because what you're left with is a microbiome and a synergistic relationship, the most important synergistic relationship in your life, beside your marriage, of course, uh, <laughs> that will last you forever and will affect every single disease in your life and will determine your longevity and and vitality. So I think we've made that decision to kind of push that to our uh, clinical research uh, team. Can I I make a suggestion? I hope you don't mind since we're planning a study now, but I would love to make that a randomized (laughs) controlled trial where we give them one of the quack pseudoscience gut health books that where it pedals both wrong. Yeah. That's just just cruel. uh, 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 It might uh, be unethical, Will. I'm I'm frothing at the mouth for those results. I am dying to show people how much we're going to crush the quack science. I I tell you, so we had an interaction about the, the fact that people who disseminate bad information and how much it affects society. When they say lectins are bad, it's not just a book. It's not just a bunch of people uh, saying that tomatoes are... It affects 
it, that space is filled with, because just the human nature, it's filled with junk information and junk right. food. And, and so when somebody says grain is bad, I'm not going to name who, it if, I mean, we are dealing on a daily basis with ramification of that statement and that, that concept. And right. it affects, and, and of course, because we, we are human beings, we choose to confirm our own previous biases and, and uh, hear good news about our bad habits. When somebody says or even implies that grains are bad or fruits are bad or, or lectin is bad, we fill it with the things that we've been doing, which is, oh, let's go back to the meat and process because that's easy. Oh, this whole new science of plants and grains, it, it must be false. So we go back to our, so that's the dilemma. And when we see a book that lays out the science where it needs to, yeah. and then also finds the easy answer. Oh, it's, uh, so I don't think we can do the placebo one. I'm sorry. It's just too cruel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's true. No, no, yeah. this is beautiful. One of the other things that I wanted to touch on was, you know, in developed nations, up to one third of all the visits to primary care clinics involve patients with emotional disorders, whether it's anxiety or depression and other mental health issues. Right. And there's been a lot of great research that explores the pathophysiology of, you know, mood and anxiety disorders and how it's related to gut health. And I think it's important for us to kind of dispel some of the myths in this field, too, because a lot of people are banking on concepts that are not really well studied and then they're coming up with random solutions for it. We know that when you are exposed to a typical Western diet that is low in fiber and high in trans fatty acids and saturated facets, fatty acids, your gut bacteria suffer a lot. And as a consequence, you get a lot of inflammation and inflammatory markers that kind of get out of the gut into your circulation and cause damage, right? One of the concepts is the leaky gut syndrome. It's on everybody's tongue. Everybody talks about it. There's some research that has been done, but it's not too strong. Do you want to explore that area and kind of give us a perspective just from a set it up. GI specialist? We don't just look at the research. We look at the source of the research, the, the strength of the research, the repeatability of it. Has anybody else repeated that? Uh, so when it comes to that, I mean, we looked at this quite a bit. And, yeah. and even last night, we, we looked at it again saying, where is the research coming from? And just doesn't feel comfortable. I mean, at some point, we try, We would love to hear it from you. And when you step back, when you look at the short-chain fatty acids that you, we were talking about, one of the functions of the short-chain fatty acid is to stabilize the blood-brain barrier. It actually, it contributes to the formation of the blood-brain barrier, which, is, which right. are these tight junctions between yep. cells that kind of filters out what goes from circulation into the brain. And yeah. so it's that important, you know, eating fiber mm -hmm. actually contributes to the infrastructure of the brain mm -hmm. and whatever breaks down that infrastructure and that stability can cause a lot of harm. So, yeah. yeah so leaky gut is a topic that comes up over and over again. Okay. So let's start here. What you read on the internet about leaky gut, I would discard, you know, almost immediately. <laughs> Thank you. Perfect. People who are tossing around this this expression leaky gut, very, very little of this is actually evidence-based. Now, I, I mean, I'll give them credit. I think that there were some patterns that they identified early in the process 20 years ago before we had the tools necessary to really fully understand the gut microbiome that were coming more from sort of the naturopathic space. And to give them credit, they, they were sort of identifying these patterns. And I think that they were on to something. 
But the problem is you can't continue to say the exact same thing that you said in the year 2000 when we have all these studies that have exploded in the last 15 years Mm -hmm. that have changed our perspective. You know, it's kind of like the paleo diet. It's like the paleo diet was developed in the year 2000. There was no science to back it up. You can't go back and say, well, we're going to try to find some science to back this up. That's not the way it works. Yeah. 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 So there is this condition called dysbiosis. Okay. Dysbiosis is completely recognized and accepted within the medical world that this exists. And here's what it looks like. There are three parts to dysbiosis. And this is occurring in the gut. Number one, you see alteration and loss of balance within the gut microbes. So what you'll see is you'll see a loss of diversity, a loss of biodiversity. You'll see less of the good guys, which are the anti-inflammatory microbes that are supported by fiber. And you will see enrichment of the inflammatory microbes, the ones that thrive off of processed foods, the ones that thrive off of saturated fats. So when this happens, loss of good guys, too many bad guys, bad balance of bacteria, the lining of the intestine starts to break down. All right. So, and there's this layer, it's the epithelial layer that is held together. It's like a wall. It's, it's, the, it's really the gut blood barrier. We talk about the, the you know, blood brain barrier. This is the gut blood barrier. And it's meant to keep stuff in the gut and not allow it to leak into the bloodstream. And these tight junctions that hold these cells together, they're like spot welds. They start to break open. Mm-hmm. And you allow things to sneak out. And I would call that increased intestinal permeability. Mm-hmm. But I could see where per, a person would use the expression leaky gut. And if you're referring to increased intestinal permeability, there is some truth to this idea of leaky gut right here, mm-hmm. which is that tight junctions break down and you have the release of contents from the intestines. And what starts sneaking into the bloodstream is bacterial endotoxin. Bacterial endotoxin, also called the lipopolysaccharide, mm-hmm. in a word, it is inflammation. Yeah. It could be a low-grade smoldering inflammation that predisposes you to heart disease, to cancer, or even to brain disorders like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, things of this variety. It could also be a punch, like a a shot of of the bacterial endotoxin. And that's what you see when a person has an overwhelming infection and they develop what's called sepsis. Mm -hmm. This is the person who needs to be in the intensive care unit. This is what we're seeing in some of our COVID-19 patients. They develop sepsis. It's an overwhelming amount of bacterial endotoxin. All right. So Those are the three steps, alteration or damage of the gut microbes, breakdown of the gut barrier, and the release of bacterial endotoxin into the bloodstream. Let's talk about fiber. When you consume fiber, you release butyrate. Here's what butyrate does. Number one, it enriches the good guys. You get more good guys. Oh, sounds like we're working on the balance, right? Well, how about the bad guys? What happens to them? Butyrate actually directly inhibits the inflammatory microbes. Mm -hmm. They have studies that show that you will just by administering butyrate, you will reduce levels of salmonella, shigella, and E. coli. It has to do with the fact that it is a short chain fatty acid. So it changes the pH of the colon, which affects the dynamics of these microbes. So you are swinging the pendulum in your favor. You are getting your balance back when you get enough fiber in your diet. When this happens, butyrate also goes straight to these tight junctions, straight to the tight junctions and repairs them. Butyrate is known to actually directly repair tight junctions. You're restoring the gut blood barrier. Amazing. And when you do that, the bacterial endotoxin goes down to nothing. Yeah. Now, everything that I just said, 
you could take this exact same concept and insert the word brain for gut mm-hmm. <laughs> because it is the exact same concept. The blood brain barrier is constructed in a very similar fashion to the epithelial layer in the gut in the sense that the tight junctions are the critical piece. And we see these people, to be fair, it's hard for us medical doctors when a person comes in and talks about brain fog. Yeah. Right. But I think the brain fog is probably related to what we're talking about right now, which is that when you break down the tight junctions of the blood brain barrier, you are allowing things like bacterial endotoxin to cross the blood brain barrier and have effects. You're allowing things to get into the brain that shouldn't be there. Absolutely. I, I, and what's, what's interesting is that every day we hear a different piece of information saying, oh, uh, Alzheimer's, for example, is related to uh, infections or to uh, bacterial infections or to you know, viral infections or, or to something else. And, and when you get down to what the underlying common denominator is, it's a leaky, I'm going to use their term, uh, blood-brain barrier. And it's yeah. related to this concept of, uh, of uh, uh, leakiness. Or, uh, and, and the reason is because as we get older and as because of poor nutrition, the blood-brain barrier is affected. So now you have more transmission of bacterial, fungal, uh, and all the other uh, uh, variables that have been held back by this blood-brain barrier now is leaking into the central nervous system. So even small vacillations and endotoxins that in the past would be blocked by the blood-brain barrier are not. So they get the fogginess, they get the altered. And if that lasts long enough, that becomes dementia. And, and, And it's so beautiful to see something as simple as fiber could have such profound long-term effect on all diseases, including dementia, stroke, and and Alzheimer's. If you are trying to protect the brain, the approach is start by healing the gut and healing the blood-brain barrier. Yeah. Because when you do that, you now have two walls protecting you from the most vital organ, which is the brain. Yeah. And what's fascinating is that butyrate, you know, I just described how it repairs the tight junctions in the gut. Mm -hmm. Guess what? It repairs the tight junctions in the blood, in the blood brain barrier too. Absolutely. And so this is what is magical about this butyrate. You know, I'll I'll be honest with you. My original draft of my book had 30,000 more words. (laughs) And the reason why is because number one, I'm a nerd. And number two, I would love to just keep taking a deeper and deeper and deeper dive into the value of short chain fatty acids. The problem is I would have ended up with 125 pages in one chapter about short chain fatty acids. Yes. Yeah, that actually happened to us. And our publisher said there's actually an eye test. If your book is thicker than a specific size, (laughs) your sales actually go down. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know what I had to do? I had to take my, I have 600 references. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Which added like, you know, 50 pages to the back of the book. I love it. And so I actually had to take the references out of the book. And so, but here's the good news. I believe, like you guys, in complete transparency. I believe in science. If you want to put my, you know, assertions to the test, please do. Yeah. So I'm putting those references 100% for free on my website, theplantfedgut.com. Anyone can go and download them. You don't have to buy the book. I'll give you the references for free. And while you're there, because I'm trying to really speak to the layperson who's confused about all the misinformation out there, with the references, I'm going to give you my research guide, which is basically like, look, let me give you the fundamentals. Let me give you research 101 yeah. so that you can sniff out the quack science when it's out there. 
Beautiful. love it. Uh, this is exactly what we push is the idea of giving the population the language to be able to distill and between what pseudoscience, you know, in our household, one of the first things that we taught our kids was the work of Karl Popper, uh, you know, uh, falsifiability and, and pseudoscience. And that's the dilemma we have right now, because every day there's a thousand people on the internet saying, oh, this doctor said this, or this, this doctor did work on 10 patients of his and he saw, he saw that. Those are anecdotes. Anecdotes don't science make. It, it takes much bigger view of the landscape. And even there, having the humility to say that to the best of our knowledge today, this is the direction of science. And if you're going to give me counter arguments, the counter arguments even have to have a certain method to them. Um, right. And they have consequences. We see what the consequences with COVID-19. There's a lot of information out there and we're not going to get into the politics of it at all. But if we don't make the right decisions right now, the very you know mortality of humanity is at stake, one, because of, of other factors, but the very healthcare system that we're talking about, saving billions of dollars. We, we talk about this. If, if we went plant-based, we're talking about 80% of Alzheimer's, 80 to 90% of Alzheimer's and stroke would be eliminated. And I'm sure right. the same number is true for uh, GI diseases. I mean, I look, I think that part of the reason why Alzheimer's and stroke are eliminated has to do with GI. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. You would alter the TMAO balance, right? I mean, you would alter the, so I think they're all intertwined. You know, again, like our medical system trains us where you're a neurologist and I'm a gastroenterologist and we're supposed to fo focus on our particular organ, but really we need that whole view of the body. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I just, I completely agree with you. It is a crazy time when it comes to misinformation. Yeah. And I really feel like the people who are listening to us at home today, you know, now is the time where you need to celebrate accurate information. Yeah. The way that you combat misinformation is to lift up the good stuff. Mm -hmm. And so if you guys are listening to this podcast and you hear high quality information, which frankly, every single podcast with the sure's eyes, is this. It is high quality information. Thank you. Oh, thank and you. what you should be doing is you should be sharing it with your friends. You oh. should be telling your friends because that's how you get the word out. And if you read my book, Fiber Fueled, if you read my book and you, and you believe in it, you should celebrate that and you should put it on your social media and let people know because that's how we celebrate high quality information. I agree. Absolutely. No, I your fully book, agree with that. Your book is a gift. Absolutely lovely, science-based. And you know, one of the other things that I absolutely love about your book is the fact that it's not militaristic. It's not fear-mongering. You've actually looked at it from a wonderful perspective of changing behavior. You strive for people to do their best and you give them a direction of following that path. It's not an all-or-none phenomenon. You ask them, to kind of start their journey where they are and you guide them. And that's beautiful because there are a lot of people who are stuck in their habits and changing habit is tough. I mean, yeah. we deal with that. As a behavioral neurologist, Dean always addresses habits as a core aspect of health rather than something on the sidelines and assuming that people know what they have to do. No, it's not mm -hmm. like that at all. And so I love the fact that, you know, there's a, there's a part in one of the chapters where you say strive for 90% for those who are not used to this lifestyle. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's a beautiful message. That's very, very empowering because everybody can see themselves doing it. I was the same, you know, I was the guy who ate that way, the standard American diet. Mm -hmm. And I gained 50 pounds. I had an anxiety problem. I had high blood pressure, I had low energy, I had low self-esteem. 
And I am a normal human being like everyone else, which means that I'm prone to these kind of things happening. But I also happen to be a medical doctor. You know, I was in Chicago. I was the chief medical resident, one of the top programs in the country. And I still, with all that great training, couldn't figure my way out of this. Mm -hmm. And it was finding plant-based nutrition that changed my own life, that changed my health. And it was a journey. I didn't do it in one day. It took years for me to make the full transition. And so, you know, I look out and I, what I see is that the average person in the United States right now is 10% plant-based. Yeah. And when I was 10% plant-based, if you said to me, hey, the way is 100% and that's the only way and you need to start today, I would go, you are just overwhelming me. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I can't do it. So I think it just starts with one step. For me, that first step was so simple. Instead of going to Hardee's to get a double cheeseburger and a chili cheese dog, instead of that, I went home and I made a smoothie. The smoothie was like 35 ounces, bananas, greens, berries, and some flax. That was it. Yeah. And it filled me up. I was satisfied. I was actually energized. I went to the gym an hour later. I didn't have a hangover. I didn't need a Red Bull to get through the rest of the day. And it brought me back for day two. And next thing you know, when you start building healthy habits, when it's a habit and you compound it day after day, it leads to huge results. And that's yeah. what happened for me. I lost 50 pounds. I went back to my high school weight. That's amazing. That's amazing. 40 than I did when I was 30. That's amazing. That's incredible. Okay. So people can find this book. When is it being released? The book is out May 12th. Okay. Book is out May 12th and it's going to be available on bookshelves, on, in bookstores and on Amazon. And it's called Fiber Fueled. And if people want to get more information about you, they can visit your website. What is your website? My website is theplantfedgut.com. Perfect. And you can come to Instagram and find me as the Gut Health MD. And, and just, you know, the one thing I will say is that because of the COVID-19 crisis, you know, I, I feel for the local bookstores. I want a day someday when COVID-19 is over that I'm able to go into my bookstore and have a cup of coffee on a rainy day and flip through a book. Yeah. And in order for that to happen, we need to support them. So if you choose to buy my book, please feel free to buy it wherever you prefer. But I definitely love the idea of buying local. We agree with that. Absolutely. That's, that's so true. That's so true. Beautiful. And there are a lot of recipes too in the last part of the book, right next to the references. And they're absolutely delicious. I can't wait to make some of them. They're beautiful. We have uh, an entire four week plan. Yeah. It was not enough to say, hey, here's the path, go that way. It was not enough. And when I set out to write the book and I originally, you know, wrote up my um, book proposal, I mean, look, it would have been so easy to do a 10 day thing, <laughs> right? It would have been so easy and then call it a detox. Yeah. 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 10 day oh. go detox, boom, you're done. It would have been so much easier. But, the, but as I was researching my book, I kept coming across four weeks. You change your diet, yeah. boom, four Later, less TMAO. Boom. Four weeks later, more short chain fatty acids. Mm -hmm. Boom. Four weeks later, this. Boom. Four weeks later, that. And so it became clear to me that that's what it needed to be. It had to be a four week plan. So we have over 75 recipes. Lovely. It's entirely laid out for you. And I think what I love about it the most is that every single person, like your gut microbiome is as unique as a fingerprint. Yeah. There is no person on the planet that has the same gut microbiome as you. We may have, you know, I mean, I'm sure that our gut microbiomes are quite similar, but it, it could be 0%. Right. Meanwhile, our human genetics are 99.9% .9 the same. Yeah. 
And so when we were creating this dietary plan, I needed something that could be adapted to the individual person. And so what I love about it the most is that every person who does the four-week plan will have their own experience. And I love that they will learn something about themselves. And that will set them off on hopefully a lifelong journey where they are healing their gut. This is not a whole 30 where you quit after 30 days. This is the start of a lifestyle that heals and transforms. I completely I, I, we agree. agree. Definitely. And, and I love the idea of the 30 days. It's, it's not a gimmick. You got to do a little more work in order to get that habit change as well as the microbiome change and, and, and everything else. So that's wonderful. I mean, we could speak to you for hours, to be honest, and we didn't even get into the depth of walking, the wonkiness of the that's, science. And that's the, part two. We'll do this again. And the next time we'll, we'll geek out again and go into I some of the details. I kind of feel like it should be like, um, <laughs> you know, when I was in high school, I used to do the dance marathon as a fundraiser. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be fun to have a research marathon where we try to see how long we could go and like have people call in and stuff. Let's oh, do that it. That would be wonderful. Let's do it. I think that's a brilliant idea. Yeah. We should do that. <laughs> We yeah. should do that. And we'll bring some of our other science friends into the conversation here and there. That's not a bad idea. That's a great. Yeah. Great idea. Yeah. Well, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the book, for this gift. And we can't wait to speak to you again. Guys, it's such a pleasure. And I, again, as I said, right off the top, I look forward to the day where we are dancing in a circle and screaming and yelling and having a great time again <laughs> when COVID. I look forward to it. Thank Definitely. you so much. Thank you.